passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back, everybody. It is John Pollock, and you have you have grown to love these quarterly chats. It is a pleasure to welcome the newest member of the post-wrestling family, launching WrestleNomics Radio here on the site on this Sunday night, but we have plenty to discuss today coming out of the WWE's third quarter earnings report, and I think a discussion that, to quote Nick Khan, is going to be intense and fun. I'm welcoming Brandon Thurston here to the show. Brandon, how are you? I'm good, John. Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, it's uh, I had the earnings call to cover yesterday, and I was trying to do a live stream yesterday evening, and just t- Twitter was on fire with with all the people who were being released at the at the at the exact same time that I was doing that. So I figured I was done at that point. It was a, a long, intense day, and then I woke up this morning, and I found out no, it's it's not over yet. It's not over. Christina Salen is out. You, you, you were actually the one that alerted me to the, the Christina Salem news that I, I had not been aware of until you had messaged me. So, I mean, I, I go back to the, the the craziest day that coincided with a, with an earnings call of recent memory was going back a couple years when the earnings call landed on the same day as a Saudi Arabia card when they were yes. doing them Thursday mornings and they were pretty much back to back. Halloween uh, this, 2018, I think. That's it. Yes. 2018. Uh, this one trumped that one for, sh- anyway. for sure. Well, we'll uh, people will give us some leeway there. The comments are always very on top of everything. Uh, but this one certainly uh, trumped all of that. Uh, just in terms of the optics of all this, Brandon, I mean, do you believe that that is even a consideration when it comes to, um, you know, a day when you're making this big announcement coinciding with uh, the latest in a series of mass cuts because, you know, it's obviously not um, not a mistake that both of these events occurred within hours of each other. But mm-hmm. I, I definitely venture to question whether that's really of any concern to them in, in the grand scheme of things, of how close in proximity these announcements came. Yeah, I, d- I did think about that because I heard you and Wei talking about that in the news update today, which I just listened to. Look at that um, on top of this. Yes, yes, yes. Product placement. Uh, and I think I, I think there's there's. The, the problem what was this, the issue probably is that they didn't want to announce the cuts before the earnings call or shortly mm-hmm. before the earnings call. I'm, I'm, I imagine that that was the edict for some reason. Um, I don't know if they wouldn't want questions about that. I don't know that that this stock analyst audience really would even question that though. Uh, if anything, in an investor point of view, this is this is cutting costs, and you know as long as you're not cutting Roman Reigns, I don't think anybody's going to bat an eye. Um, so I don't know. There must have been some reason why they didn't want to do it before the the earnings call, and I and I bet that you know once once uh you know the earnings call was over with John Laurinaitis or whoever was told yeah you can go ahead and do it just but but it's got to be after you know six o'clock on on Thursday or whatever. It, it to me it, it's never really um, sh- shined a light more so on just the the complete separation of the company's end of things and the talent that are. You know, the the worker bees that you come across, like if you are someone just covering this business, feel very replaceable outside of maybe a few key stars. And it's it's just a very stark contrast. And this comes at a time when I think the company more than ever are leaning on these these personalities, these superstars that are brands to them that they are finding a, a way to license and make money off of. But in the grand scheme of things, very much replaceable. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So Nick Khan, not only is he, as I've been thinking and writing and telling people today, the man who holds the keys to the to the media rights uh, negotiations, which are so important to this company. But but there's all all these other little little deals that we see press releases for, like when it's what are the, it's the NFTs or cameo 
uh, all these little ways to monetize their wholly owned intellectual property. Um, but at the same time, this is a company who's collected a lot of wrestlers over the last few years. Um, they'll never say it publicly, but I think it's because they wanted to hold this talent away from other competitors, including AEW. They've, they went from having, I think something around 150 talent under contract. They disclose this number too every year in their annual report. So we do get an annual update. They had somewhere around 150, maybe 180, I think in 2015. Um, and then by 2019, or, or maybe it's the most recent year uh, annual report, they had around 300. So they basically doubled the number of talent that they had under contract over the last several years. Um, I think that was to compete with others who they didn't want to allow to have an opportunity to, be- to become players in the wrestling business. Um, so there's that, that phenomenon happened. And now they're deciding, you know, this, this vision, this brand that triple H built and all these people that he signed, we're rejecting that. And we're not, we're not, doing talent that way anymore. We don't want to. And I I think part of it is, this is just my read on the situation, especially when you see them release people like Keith Lee. I think they're saying, you know, if AEW wants these wrestlers or somebody else wants these wrestlers, we're not going to compete for them. We're not going to, you know, get into a bidding war over talent and and run up our costs. We're going to grow our talent from the ground up and pull them out of whatever athletic field and train them in our facility. And we're going to double down on this idea that we don't need people with, with a, a wrestling background before they came to us. Um, so there's that happening too. It's a lot of talent that they collected and, and didn't need in the first place in, in those numbers anyway. And it's a change in the vision of the kind of talent that they want. Yeah. I, I think it's really hard for even the, um, the most optimistic viewer to look at this, that all of these moves it has just been such a, a wholesale denouncement of the Paul Levesque model that had been crafted, that had been built up, that found a lot of success as a as a touring brand that could go to the Barclays Center, for instance, and sell out a takeover. That is not the NXT of today. And it has just mm-hmm. been from, from the key players that he recruited to the entire philosophy like that is it's a 180 over the past year. Yeah. And so he they disclosed and they put out a press release when this happened that Paul Levesque had a cardiac event in early September. Um, it's now been more than a month. We're now in early November. So I guess it's about two months since that, that was announced and disclosed. I can't imagine what Paul Levesque is going to do when he comes back to this company. What kind of role is he going to have? I can't imagine him having a similar role that he had in NXT when he comes back to this, this rainbow colored NXT with all the different talent. <laughs> They've totally revamped it mm-hmm. in, you know, since September. Uh, nor, nor was that even brought up on the call. And maybe that's not necessarily to be expected, but Paul Levesque is often in the background on these calls. He's not always called upon, but mm-hmm. um, that was interesting. Like one of your executives that had a, you know, a publicly disclosed, you know, significant health issue was yeah. not mentioned. I was, I was curious if that would even be addressed off the top and maybe they felt that was not the place for it. So in the Q and a Brandon Ross of Lightshed did ask about NXT. Yes. Uh, Nick Khan did mention the name Paul Levesque in, right. tandem, in tandem with Bruce Pritchard, as far as the people who are, you know, recruiting talent or in charge of talent development. Um, so his name, his name got mentioned, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, the, the, the question was along the lines of how are, are you satisfied with the way that NXT, the new next new NXT 2.0 is coming along. And they said, of course they are. I can't imagine that's a very honest answer, though. This this is a, a brand that's supposed to appeal to younger audiences, supposed to appeal to the 18 to 34 crowd. It's got the oldest median age in all of wrestling. Um, but it's it's holding its viewership okay. So it's not doing terribly, but it's not going to appear to be achieving the goals that, that they have said that they are trying to achieve with it. Um, but yeah, I, I just I was talking to someone earlier today. I just don't know how WWE or uh, Paul Levesque is going to come back and do what was he going to do in this company? Uh, it seems like the, the game that he's been playing since 1995, everything that his career has been building towards, which we all thought, you know, years ago was to succeed uh, Vince in the creative role. And that's very much in question now. Uh, I don't know w- what he's going to do in this company. Uh, just going over some of the, uh, the major notes from the actual earnings report, they reported revenue for the quarter of 255, $255,853,000. That translates to a net income of just shy 
of $43.5 million. Uh, Brandon, you had gone through uh, your own evaluation uh, heading into the quarter. So how did the numbers um, compare to what your expectations were heading into Thursday? I have a chart for that. We, we will we will describe it though for people listening on on, on the podcast only. Um, so all of the analysts who's I don't see everybody's analysts report, but I see these sort of condensed uh, aggregated reports that say here's what the high was, here's what the low was, here's what the average was, and the average was thirty four cents earnings per share. So that's net income per share, and there's like eighty some odd million shares. Thirty four cents was what the analysts were expecting. They beat on that. I think it's what is fifty three cents per share is what it ended up being. I, I thought it was going to be fifty six, so I, I was higher than any any analyst. So the team here at Russellnomics headquarters, we came together and we ran our various math formulas through the math machine, and uh, we were able to. to I think they had it uh, earnings per share listed at uh, fifty seven cents, but diluted shares fifty two cents. Right. So I, I, I'm. I'm talking about diluted. Yeah. So 52. So I was a little bit high, um, but, but much, much closer than, um, than the, uh, than the like 11 analysts who, who put out reports on it. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they beat on earnings. The stock price is down today. Of course, maybe that has something to do with the news of Christina Salen being out of the company. I don't know though. Um, what happens a lot, I would have to go through the, the stock history and, and, pick out the dates of the earnings, you know, reports. But I think what happens a lot of times uh, is that on earnings, people sell on results, you know, you speculate uh, and then you, you sell on what the results are. And I think you know, what's happened here is especially when the, the stock price has been climbing, like it has been uh, over the last few months, it's been on just a consistent straight line climb up and to the right. So it's, I think it's, I haven't looked in the last couple hours, but last I saw it was under $50 per share. And this, I mean, 60, excuse me. Yeah. And it would seem like if we are following the pattern leading up to the 2014 television negotiations and certainly the, the, uh, when the, the new, when the negotiations were going on for, for the big 2018 deals, at least when they were announced, like that was where we saw the big climbs in the stock was the lead up to those announcements. And certainly you are getting nothing but confidence out of Nick Khan that they are expecting, you know, sizable growth for the, the next set of, negotiations once these deals come up in 2024. Yeah. And we, we saw hype about the, the Hulu rights, which That's right. j- just as we were about to start our call, I was trying to Google what he, this, this acronym he used to refer to the next day, Hulu rights, R-I-A. Um, it's beyond me what that stands for, but yeah. we know what he's talking about. <laughs> he's talking about the, the next day rights to Raw and SmackDown. And, and uh, I guess NXT and main event are probably in there too. But um that's that deal is coming to an end soon. Um, that that's something that we we knew about beforehand. They're they're hyping that there's immense interest in this. Um, I, it makes the most sense to me for Peacock for NBCU to have this and to close the window. They are already getting the, the rights to all the Raw and SmackDown episodes thirty days after the fact, uh, so they have to wait thirty days right now to put put all the Raw and SmackDown episodes uh, on Peacock. But having the next day rights would make Peacock your 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 center for uh, for catching up on WWE if you didn't see it live. So that makes a lot of sense for them. Hulu is this conglomerate that uh, I, I think he I don't I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But, he, but Nick Khan kind of summarized it. It's Hulu was originally a, a streaming service started by I think the collection of NBCU and Disney and Fox. Fox is completely out of it now, and I think is it Disney that's going to end up owning most of it or, or the that was that was Khan's. Uh crystal ball that yes, Disney would be uh, buying out NBC's outstanding share at the valuation several years from now. So it looks mm-hmm. like it's more of a, a long-term outlook of where that's uh, what Hulu is going to end up with a sole ownership of Disney. Yeah. Which is sort of confusing in the, on, on a wider basis, right? Like Disney obviously has Disney plus, which is this huge deal and is very successful. Right. But, and, and NBCU has its own separate thing in Peacock. So what, what's the usefulness of, of Hulu? I don't know, but anyway, um, they're hyping that, that, uh, that negotiation and I'm, and I, and they probably will get an increase in that. And now that'll, that'll proceed. Um, whatever happens in the, the real WrestleMania in 2023, maybe in the spring of 2023, when, when new, new deals get done. Um, and that's, that's, probably going to be the timing for AEW two, roughly. Um, what's what I, I've been wondering about lately when it comes to the TV rights fees though, is that 
I wonder if we're going to see sort of an evolution in the, in the complexity of these rights, which is kind of what we already saw in the most recent round where they went from NBCU owning both Raw and SmackDown rights to Nick Khan came in before he worked for WWE, came in as a, as a, as a person working for CAA to help WWE. And he, he said, no, let's, let's split the rights and sell Raw to NBCU. And let's shop around SmackDown. They ended up, of course, selling it to Fox. I, I wonder if it gets more com- complex in the next round where maybe there's live traditional TV rights sold to, to one or, um, or multiple parties. And then maybe there's live digital rights of some kind sold. I don't know if it's just it's too early to think about that, whether that's something that would really happen or not. Um, but that's something I, I, I'm trying to keep in mind. Maybe that's going to happen. Um, or I would say at the very least that, I mean, that kind of seemed to be the pattern of the recent uh, NFL rights and all of those renewals of, you know, a pretty sizable digital component attached to like, obviously the NFL has a, has an edict of wanting to be on broadcast television, but mm-hmm. all of these networks having their, their own uh, subscription services, wanting, wanting a sizable amount there as well. Yeah. Like yeah. that's, and Given the timing, um, where an ESPN Plus is going to be two to three years from now, as opposed to today, uh, how aggressive Amazon gets, like it, mm-hmm. it behooves WWE that you have, you know, these options that are out there. That who is going to spend just ridiculous sums for that kind of programming that's going to become a signature for your service? Yeah, and I, it, it's a far broader conversation, but I, I it, it seems to me like there's always going to be this older portion of the population that's always going to have traditional cable and, and probably isn't going to change their habits. Um, so I think there's always going to be some, something of a market for tradi- traditional cable and satellite, but obviously we have an, an ever growing younger population. That's, you know, more, more apt to cut the cord. Um, and, and the other thing that wasn't really touched on here, but they've hiked in previous calls about how uh, Apple and Amazon might be players for sports rights. And, uh, at the moment, I've, I'm becoming more skeptical that that's really going to happen. We know that Amazon owns Thursday night uh, NFL rights, but if I'm not mistaken, they haven't really made any real play for any other U.S. sports rights. Um, I have a great deal of trouble seeing Apple, the brand Apple, the luxury brand, having something to do with wrestling. Um, and I don't know, the speculation is that, that the fangs, these five big tech companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google would, if they get into sports rights, whoa, look out because that'll, that'll explode the price of everybody because they're the richest companies in the world. Um, is that going to happen though? I'm, I'm less convinced today than I was a few months ago, especially considering, man, you know, we didn't get any, any hype about that, uh, that I recall on, on the earnings call, uh, to reinforce that. Uh, obviously a big focus of, uh, of this earnings report and call, uh, was live events, which was, you know, a, I won't say crippling division of the company, but it was one that did not, it looked very bleak it, quarter after quarter uh, pre-pandemic, but that was a big turnaround with the return of live fans over this quarter. And this ties into, you know, their their ongoing pay-per-view strategy of really making these, instead of just having your kind of by the numbers monthly pay-per-view, trying to put a lot more stock into big events and that meaning stadiums, and this area of their business um, performing very well this quarter in their first quarter back. Yes. The, an average North American attendance of 8,300, which I have a spreadsheet somewhere that goes back to 2010. And this includes WrestleMania quarters too, where they've broken WrestleMania out and not broken WrestleMania out uh, f- for, for all those WrestleMania quarters. And this is like a WrestleMania quarter, I think even higher than any WrestleMania quarter for going back to 2010. So we might have to go really, really far back to find, find an average attendance that's this high. So WWE definitely benefited from pent-up demand. Now remember, this has got the SummerSlam event in, in it that has about 45,000 uh, paid attendees, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, but not one person from Tennessee, Brandon. Yeah. That was a surprising stat that they brought up where, um, for those that didn't hear the call, when explaining SummerSlam going to Nissan Stadium in Nashville this July was that through their their research that of the tickets that sold for SummerSlam, not one ticket was purchased from the state of Tennessee with Nick Khan's belief that these are Las Vegas and Nashville are similar markets with very little crossover. And I guess the thinking that 
if Tennessee or Nashville specifically will not venture out, then we will venture in and bring a lot of tourism with it. But I, I found that to be a fascinating so that's what statistic. He was saying. That's what I took it. So yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, okay. Interesting. But yeah, um, they, they did very well here. And the, the average in, in their four international events, which were all UK events, 7400 the average ticket price was $75 in North America. Was that correct? Yeah, $75 North America. I think it was 81 in the for the UK events. So, and that's way higher than, than anything outside of a WrestleMania quarter. WrestleMania gets really skewed. And I think there are some quarters that have measured in at the $80 average ticket price, maybe even 90 But for a non-WrestleMania quarter, this is enormous. Um, I think it's going to be much more normal in Q4. The trends that we're seeing uh, through WrestleTix for what the, the ticket counts are for Q4 at this point are, are going to be uh, much more calm. Uh, they, they did really well with, with SummerSlam. That'll be, that's a part of this, this average and this total. Um, and those early events in July and the, the first events back on the road did really well too. You know, Houston selling out with 13 or 14,000. So yeah, they did really well. I, but I expect um, a, a, a more normal pre pre pandemic, like uh, Q4 where maybe live event division uh, doesn't uh, report positive operating income again. How would you assess from from your vantage point just the, the the strategy that they have gone with, where it's not the old house show touring model of old, where it's every weekend it's the the four events that you get in, and then you get your couple of days off, and then it's back on back on the wheel again. It's select weekends, it's generally super shows and overseas tours, and certainly a dramatic decrease in the amount of dates, even with um, their, their touring schedule as it currently exists. Yeah, I haven't thought about that a lot about in terms of how, what is the touring schedule like now versus what it was pre-pandemic. I think they'd even slowed down, if I recall, in Q1 2020. It was. Uh, yeah, they were like you were certainly seeing the odd like weekend off that it was, you know, they were scaling back. And I, I to your point about the performance of that sector, it seemed like let's let's eliminate the shows that are going to skew low and are just mm-hmm. going to be money losers for us. Right, Vince at, at some point, one of the one of the quarters just before the pandemic, promised they were going to reimagine the live events division. Yeah, uh, now live events are the aspect that bring the brand brings the brand alive. I think was the wording. Yes, well, you have to have live fans there, uh, otherwise, it's not quite pro wrestling uh, in the same way. Um, but yeah, I I think it makes less and less sense to to run house shows, especially when you're a, a media business, as they as they remind us, they are a media business. Uh, they're a business about selling video, whether that's live video or or some other form. Uh, so why would you be putting on all of these shows that you know that have no video use, no media use? Uh, if if that quarter conti- or if that division continues to to not make a profit. Uh, in, uh, in, in quarters to come, I, I, I really, and I've, I was questioning this, you know, a couple of years ago, why, why continue to do these house shows? I can see the value that they would have in terms of, they're kind of a marketing tool, putting smiles on people's faces that last a lifetime, even, even if you're losing a little bit, a little bit of money on it. Uh, and it, it creates a relationship with fans maybe, um, and, and promotes the product in a, in a, in a given town. But, uh, I don't know in a, in a business that has been turned upside down over over the decades from being a live event business to being a media business. It just makes less and less sense. And then when you see a, a company that was redrawn from scratch in AEW, you know, they've run like two house shows ever, you know, and that seems to be the, the cost effective thing to do. On the subject of AEW, was it um, at all surprising to you that it, it was not a topic broached? Because this this was this past quarter was, I would say, a significant one for that company and what they were able to do in the month of September. And often, if I have my my analysts right, it's usually like Brandon Ross that'll kind of stir the pot when it comes to AEW questions. But uh, those letters were never uttered on this call at all. Yeah, no, that, that that's true. I did see there was. Um... Alan Gould, which one does he write for? Which, which firm is he with? One of the analysts um, wrote a, a report that I did see where there was quite a bit of engagement on on AEW, which was surprising to me. So the analysts are aware of, of AEW, at least most of them are, are, are well enough aware of, of what AEW is and what they're doing, what, the, what their comparisons are, uh, especially in, in 1849. Um, but I guess they're... There was a question last time, and I feel like, well, maybe it's kind of 
it's kind of uh, been explored and you know what their answer is going to be. They're just going to say, you know, everything is our competition, including sleep. We're focused on ourselves. It's kind of been litigated for now until there's more to talk about maybe. Yes. We also have the return of uh, Laura Needham on this call. Uh, I know a personal favorite of yours. Laura Martin, Vince. Laura Martin from Needham. I do that all the time. Yes. yes. Yeah. Laura Martin. I forget what she wanted to know about. Yeah. Yeah. I think she had a question uh, for for Stephanie in there. Um, They had the, as well, the announcement there, they're increasing their guidance for uh, the rest of this year, upping it to uh, a range of 305 to 315 million. This seems directly correlated to the fact that they got in the Saudi Arabia event this, this quarter. And the fact that there are now two outstanding Saudi Arabia shows that I guess are going to be tacked on um, at yeah. time to be determined. But um, is that largely what you read as the uh, the reasoning for this? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and so we'll have this. This Maybe this becomes not just a 10-year deal that goes through, what, 2027, 20, but maybe it goes through 2028 for an additional uh, two events. Um, those are $50 million in revenue per year, probably with a pretty high margin. Um this this most recent one would seem to be at a smaller venue, so maybe they spent a little bit less on it even. Um, but yeah, and, and and another thing to think about in terms of how profitable WWE is, this uh, return to touring, it's a little bit less expensive for them to be on the road than it is to be in the Thunderdome. I was talking with Chris Gull last night. He was, you know, surprised by this. Uh, and the Thunderdome was really expensive. Yeah. Um, the, Thunder, the Thunderdome is more exp- obviously more expensive than being at the PC where they saved a ton of money early on in the pandemic. But um, this, this touring format that they have now where they're running on Monday and Friday, it, it is more expensive than when they were running on Monday and Tuesday when SmackDown was on Tuesday, but uh, they're saving money by being back on the road now. And they're, they're obviously at a benefit in terms of TV ratings uh, for having fans in attendance again. Yeah, it is interesting to look at that comparison that the UFC has been able to get away with, where if you are following, like their fight night specials are all in their own, their own facility of the apex. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, minimal crowd. So expenses are low and pretty much fixed. It's not big fight. It's, you know, find a main event that is suitable for television and round out the card, bulk up your pay-per-views with your biggest cards and you know, their television viewership has not been affected. They do very well on ESPN, on ESPN Plus. And that to me was, if WWE could have pulled that off with those PC shows, um, the expenses would have been enormous uh, over the course of the pandemic. And with UFC, it's kind of hard to just justify going back on the road when things are working in this in this format. Yeah, it's, a, it's surprising to me when I started to learn about it, how expensive it is to put these, these shows on. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you watch some old wrestling where it's like there's a curtain and a ring and some lights, maybe not, not some especially bright ones even. Um, but there, you know, a, a, a wrestling event, I, th- I think a raw or a SmackDown costs them nearly a million dollars to produce. Um, I think maybe AEW spends a little bit less, but it's many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and, and anytime you can avoid having an extra load in and load out, you save a lot of money in doing that. And that's why we see AEW, do so many of these, you know, uh, you know, rampage tapings in tandem with, with a pay-per-view or with dynamite. Uh, it saves them a lot of money, not having to load in and load out. Um, it's why WrestleMania making WrestleMania, WrestleMania two days is not that big of a, of a, of a risk. You know, uh, it's just holding all that stuff there for an extra day. It's not picking all that up and traveling to another, uh, stadium. So, so yeah, um, they're, they're saving a lot of money this way. In just kind of a, an overall sense, um, and this can kind of tie into uh, the cuts as well, is that it, it, you sit down and go through these reports and you listen to this call, and it's almost like two different businesses when you look at the differences that this is an industry where the talent, they were largely brought up on a generation of house show payoffs, traditional pay-per-view payoffs when when that was a thing, um, you know, discretionary payoffs. and the business side has moved into all of this fixed income, streaming deals, television deals that talent gets no cut of. Uh, we have no evidence that things like this NFT deal, there's any trickle down for the talent. There may, there may not, but we don't have any transparency on that, that there's just all these new revenue streams that are being created. And the question I always get back to is that 
it just feels like this is an era where talent is at almost their their least influence when it comes to the the overall business management of the company. And on top of that, you have undeniable anxiety that has to come with cuts that could occur at any point of the year and have happened time after time that your job security isn't even what it once was a few years ago when cuts were pretty few and far between. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I always just look at, is there ever kind of that breaking point? But I, I don't hold my breath for that. It just seems like this is so baked in that um, talent is just not going to want to rock the boat, regardless of all this revenue that's created and makes WWE a very attractive company when you don't have a players association or union to have to negotiate any of this revenue with. Yeah. Especially when you see people of the status of Braun Strowman and uh, Bray Wyatt get cut. Uh, it, it, it feels like no one is safe or Nia Jax is suddenly cut and, uh, and maybe Keith Lee. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I don't think wrestlers are going to unionize. Um, there's too much competition among wrestlers for, I think, everybody to stand together. Um, we saw Zelina Vega, you know, tweet something. And then a few months later, oh, right. she's, back. she's back with WWE. Um, I, I think wrestlers are also in, in, in kind of their, their best situation in many years in terms of those two active wrestling companies who are doing pretty well and can pay wrestlers very well in, in WWE and AEW, maybe to some extent, New Japan. Um, so there's more competition. And I, I, like I said earlier, though, I think WWE's part of their strategy is to mitigate that and to say, we're not going to participate in that. And, you know, we're, or we're going to participate in it as little as we have to and just have our, we're not wrestling. We're, we're, we're we build people from scratch. Uh, so they don't have to compete with that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, wrestlers they want to be in a lot of people want to be in WWE and have their 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 childhood dream of of wrestling for this company and performing for the company so uh i think people are willing to to give up a lot for that especially if they're going to be paid fairly well or at least there's the opportunity to make millions of dollars we also got an update brandon on the soon to be released Vince McMahon documentary series on Netflix mm-hmm. that are out of this world wait until you see it Courtesy yeah. of the Podfather, Bill Simmons. Yes, Nick Khan says he's seen the cuts. He can't wait for you to see it. Uh, this may be the first Vince-centric uh, production produced uh, in, in cooperation with WWE that I think we've ever seen. Well, I guess there was a DVD years ago, but yeah, um, I'm still waiting for uh, the developments on the uh, the scripted series Vince versus the United States. Um, cool. <laughs> Yeah, it'll it's it's supposed to be a multi-part Netflix documentary, right? I'm sure I will uh will eat it up. It's uh you know, W doesn't have a very good track rec- record of being honest and introspective when it comes to their own history. So, uh, maybe this is a little bit independent though. It doesn't sound like they're totally in control of it. But uh yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh how much of it is revisionist history. Uh, let's chat a bit about uh, Christina Salen, who was mm-hmm. on this call in her in her usual role, gave her presentation. And then this morning, we get the press release that she is on her way out just over a year after being installed into that position. And it will be uh, Frank Riddick III uh, stepping in. He had been the, the interim CFO after the abrupt uh, dismissal of George Barrios and Michelle Wilson. He's been a longtime board member. And based on the press release, this does not sound like a temporary position. Frank oh. Riddick is filling. It looks like he is the guy to succeed Christina Salen. But this was um, certainly g- gave you whiplash if you were on that call last night and then getting this news <laughs> this morning. Yes, I, I was uh, just, you know, to, not long after I'd woken up, I checked my email and I got an alert from World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh and Christina Salen is out and uh, Frank Riddick is in, as you mentioned, he was previously the interim CFO. And then I, and I tweeted what I tweeted uh, that she's out and, and he's in. And I, I guess I assumed that Frank Riddick was, is going to be this interim CFO again until they find somebody else. Uh, minutes later, somebody texts me and says that, Nope, he's full time. <laughs> so, so at least that's the, that's their, uh, that's what they're communicating. Um, this so. is obviously somebody that like we know very little about Frank Frank Riddick, but seems to be almost in that same level that that like a Basil DeVito was that yes. you can plug him into any hole. And there's obviously a confidence that they have in him uh, to yeah. perform whatever it is, a, a multitude of tasks for yeah. the company. Somebody mentioned to me that he's a Vince guy, that he, he and Vince get along well. 
He's got a lot of hard, hard consonants in his name. I can see Vince liking that too. Um, <laughs> Probably but, has yeah. some, uh, some sketches of them in, in his office, a la Jerry McDivitt, I'm, I'm sure. Yes. But yeah, no, Christina Salen joined W at, at really the same time that Nick Khan did in the summer of 2020. Um, she's been CFO previously for uh, Moda Operandi and Etsy. Don't ask me to tell you what Moda Operandi is. Um, but she's been a CFO in and she was a CFO for another company called United Masters, I think. Anyway, right. she, she, she was at each of those companies, United Masters and, um, and Moda Operandi, for about a, a year and a few months. And now it's been about a year and a few months since she's out of this company. Um, several months back, I was, I was told that you know, she wasn't well-liked. Uh, I didn't really get a lot of details, but I didn't think that much of it. And then uh, even before uh, yesterday's call, uh, somebody was telling me, oh yeah, there's, there's a lot of people leaving WWE. I guess they don't, you know, she, she's causing a lot of turnover, uh, in the finance department. Uh, and I, and I looked at the timeline. I was like, oh, it's, it's about a year and a few months. You know, maybe, maybe she's not long for this job. And then sure enough, this morning she's gone. Uh, I, I imagine this was not a decision that was made this morning, <laughs> but she, I, I imagine this is just my speculation. It's not information that I know, but I imagine there was, you know, an understanding that this we'll, we'll, we'll do this through the, the earnings call and then we're going to let you go or something. But uh, yeah, it, it seems like a lot of people had a lot of problems with her. So, yeah. So the Christina Salen era comes to an end. I don't know if it is uh, going to be remembered all that much. It was not, it was not the longest tenure in the, in this position, but um yeah, certainly. I mean, it was kind of that was your your one two punch when they were introduced last summer with with Nick Khan. So and, I guess and, and, I guess we'll get to hear Frank Riddick a bit on these on these calls, presumably. We will hear him again. Yeah, uh, he's been on the conference calls in, in his interim uh, time too. But there's when, whenever major executives come to this company uh, or, or any company, probably they always make certain hires and you, you can kind of look, look at their, their LinkedIn profile and be like, Oh yeah, they worked with, with, with this person in, in these other previous jobs. And we have Karen Mullane who was hired uh, shortly after Christina Salen came there. She was the chief accounting officer. Her, her name is at the, you know, signed at the bottom of a lot of these SEC documents. So it's a question about whether she will continue to be with this company. I don't know. I've asked, nobody knows who I've talked to. Uh, and the general counsel, Samira Shah, uh, was, is also a former colleague of Christina Salen. So these seem like major Christina Salen hires. These were hires that were, you know, they issued press releases about them at the time. So we'll see if they're, I mean, these aren't going to be major, major stories, but maybe something that uh, people in the wrestling media will report on uh, soon. Was there anything else coming out of uh, any of the, the multitude of, uh, of announcements that Nick Khan had that, um, that, that stuck out to you as, as major or something to uh, kind of, park in the back of your mind for, for future discussion to plant that seed. Nothing too major. I was, what I was surprised by in, in my, in my trying to do estimates of what this company is going to report. Um, the Peacock deal is now well, well underway. This was the second full quarter under the Peacock deal. And I looked back at the, the second, what they reported in the network line for the second quarter and it was you know, sixty-one and a half million dollars. Okay, well over what they had were reporting in the direct-to-consumer era of the network, where they were reporting in the forties, forty million dollars range. So I figured, all right, they reported this is a whole quarter Q two where they had the, the Peacock deal, so it'll probably be around sixty million dollars again. They reported forty-three million dollars, mm-hmm. something more along the lines of what they were reporting when the network was just a standalone service. Um, and then Christina Salen said something in, in the Q&A that made it sound like, uh, because you know, I think somebody asked a question that was approximately about this. And she said that they allocate revenue based on the pay-per-view events that happened in that quarter. So WrestleMania, so what it sounds like, and, but she clarified that Peacock, NBCU, is paying them the same amount throughout the year. But when there's a WrestleMania, they're going to allocate a lot more revenue in the mm-hmm. WrestleMania quarter. SummerSlam, they'll you know allocate you know maybe the the third most or the second most. So it sounds like they're getting paid a fixed amount that's probably escalating over time, but a fixed amount by NBC Universal for the network rights on Peacock. But that they they decide uh, how much revenue to recognize in the quarter based on the prominence of the pay per view, which was a surprise to me. 
but apparently that's a thing that that one can do in, in accounting. <laughs> I, guess, I guess they look at the uh, the extreme rules quarter, and it's uh, yes. I guess it's it's not going to quite measure up even with a, a blockbuster like SummerSlam in there. And I mean, of note is that given that they have put out the pay per view calendar for next year. Um, scaling back somewhat, especially during the first quarter next year, instead of having your elimination chamber in there, it's looking like we will get that New Year's Day pay-per-view, the Rumble several weeks later, a Saudi Arabia card in the first quarter, and then it's it's uh, the two-night WrestleMania, which technically falls into the second quarter. Yeah. Yeah. WrestleMania usually falls in the second quarter. It's been in April uh, for a number of years. But yeah, who, who knows? You can put an elimination chamber anywhere you want. Uh, elimination chamber was on the new year's Eve, new year's revolution card years ago. Right. That is um, right. But yeah. It's uh you know, with, with any Saudi event though, they'll have a good $50 million to put in that, that other category or excuse me, the large scale international event. Yes. It's, it's amazing how much they, they cling to that term. I mean, you will, you will never hear the term Saudi Arabia on, on these calls. And I mean, it does open up the the natural question of once there is more opening in the world for more touring of where they explore other places, other governments that would be willing to spend anywhere close to that for WWE shows. I think that they would be certainly making themselves available if we're talking uh, upwards of 45 to $50 million per show. Are there other areas of the world that would be exploring that kind of thing that would, that would have that, that level of interest in yeah. WWE product? I- I, I feel like this is an anomaly, like this, this situation with Saudi Arabia. Like you've got a country that has a lot of money, presumably because they're their oil business in Saudi Aramco. But and and I think their motivation is is PR in 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 terms of let's let's get a an event that makes our country look good, and we've got a lot of you know reasons why people criticize our country. Um, I, I don't know if there's another country in the world that's like that much of a pariah in the international community and has the money. I, I don't know, but you know, it was uh, maybe, maybe we'll get another uh, North Korea um, or whatever that was called world oh, wrestling festival. That's right. WWE's collision in Korea, um, collision com- in Korea. coming to you. Uh, another, another two day event. That will be a future dark side of the ring uh, episode. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, that was the the third quarter earnings call, and I, I would be remiss, uh, Brandon, not to just get some of your just overall thoughts on on just this latest round of cuts. Do you expect this as just sort of this is going to be business as usual that we should not just look at these as you know one one year where it was extreme you know balancing of, of the numbers? Do you do you expect this to be a semi regular thing, or are you looking at this kind of condensed to they get to a certain number and then they ease off these? enormous cuts every couple of months. Well, it's got to normalize eventually, right? I think what's driving this is, is a few things. Like I said, I think they, they overstocked themselves on wrestling talent for competition reasons. Then they changed their talent philosophy, at least as, as it was administered, then started paying attention to what was happening in developmental finally, or became unsatisfied enough over enough time with what he was being served in the main roster call-ups to say, well, I don't want any more short guys and, and indie guys in their thirties. And, and they've decided that they want to do more athletes and people that they train in the performance center. Um, so I think once they get down to a certain number, I think it's, it's got to normalize. once they sort of, you know, get through the turnover and get through the rotation of, of having the kind of talent that they want, I I would imagine that it will normalize. Well, will, will Vince still be around at that point? I don't know. Um, but yeah, and I think part of it too is, is new management. I think what we've seen, not just in, in terms of wrestling talent, but in terms of their, their employee structure, um, we've seen a lot of, a lot of cost cutting, a lot of restructuring of, of departments, merging of departments. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's a new CFO and a new, chief revenue officer slash president coming in and saying, all right, this is what we've inherited. Uh, how can we make this more efficient? And often that means, you know, unfortunately laying people off. If there is a quote of the entire call, I always like to pick out the, uh, the most noteworthy quote, Brandon. I think we have to go once again to Nick Khan explaining uh, the, the streaming space and noting great success means great profits. Mediocre success still means profit. Yeah, that's oh, I I didn't catch that. That's uh, that's, that's very a great line. That's very Con. applicable. Was was that like um, 
Was that was during the Q and A uh, when Eric, <laughs> Eric Handler uh, had a question. Of this was when partners, yes, yes, um, and, and Nikon uh, dropped that one. I was like, "What? What a line that can be used in many different contexts when describing WWE. Great success means great profits. Mediocre success still means profit." Yeah, I, I think that's very applicable to WWE. I think yeah, they've put out a product that has frustrated a large portion of their fan base for many years. That's this is uh, one I think one of the necessary conditions for AEW to even exist, and uh, and they're sort of in well Vince is sort of in denial that he's in the wrestling business and uh, wants to sort of rebrand w- what they're all about and has for decades, um, but you know they want to be be something else and they're doubling down on this different talent strategy, and uh, I, th- I think eventually that catches up with them. It kind of already is in terms of there's a there's a competitor now that has some viability, uh, but you it it really emphasizes how you can do sort of a mediocre job in your content creatively, but you're so benefited by the environment that you're in, the that is the media economy that you are fortunate to find yourself in, that you can break financial records and uh, everything seems to be a okay. Best ever, in fact. It's it's going to be another incredible year uh, for the company. And one where I, I think it'll be very interesting at the end of the year, how we look back at just the state of the industry as a whole, that you have a thriving WWE, a a very legitimate competitor that, that has cultivated itself in AEW. But we have also seen like the, the other side that we have seen an NXT system completely flipped over and has changed their recruitment strategy greatly. Um, and it has led to jobs being, being eliminated. We have seen ring of honor going through a tremendous turmoil as we speak and, and what the landscape ultimately is for different performers. Like, is this overall a net positive with the emergence of an AEW at the expense of, of other entities when it comes to just recruitment jobs in the industry, it's, I think it's still a very hard year to forecast in 2022 where like, does a new Japan open up as it had pre pandemic? Are there going to be uh, the same amount of options for talent that kind of the door closes with WWE? Not everybody can end up in an AEW. And is there the, the demand to meet the supply of talent that it's, it's just an enormous amount that you have to choose from. If you're a promoter, it's just, can you, can your business sustain with, all of these numbers that are out there, not everybody is going to end up with contracts at the end of the day. Yeah. There's a lot of talent out there and a lot of talent because of, I think W's over shopping of talent that have gotten a lot of exposure in the last few years. And Certainly. now we're, now we're seeing a lot of that talent get set free. Um, and I, 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 I really think, you know, sort of fantasy booking on Russell Onyx radio, the last episode, I don't know if it, Paul, there's a great opportunity for Paul Levesque if you, if you, uh, wanted to leave WWE. And if there was, I think there's an opportunity for another wrestling brand that is really ambitious and has many of the, the skills and assets that Tony Khan has in terms of the connections in the media industry uh, to, to get a valuable media deal. Um, And and wrestling smarts. Like I think we've often kind of overlooked that. And I think AEW is showing like, yes, you need financial muscle. You need, you need certainly entertainment television connections, but you also need, wrestling smarts and God, six months ago, I probably would have scoffed at the Paul Levesque option. Um, I still think it's a long shot, but I don't think it's as absurd an idea as, as it would have been uh, at what point like this is, you can just see the the public plays that are here. And it's, it's like a very clear rejection of that system that, that he had cultivated. Yeah. You you guys are watching succession, right? I think he's got to make the Kendall move and turn and turn on his dad. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I didn't um, even think of him in the Kendall role. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he is kind of a, a Tom Wams gams though, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I think there's, there's um, just with, with the media economy being what it is, media rights being so valuable. I think there's space for another uh, wrestling competitor and we've seen ring ring of honor uh, didn't have all that it, that it took or even the desire to, to be that, that extra player. Um, I don't think impact is going to be it. 
Um, I don't know that New Japan has the vision and the personnel and the understanding of the market to make it happen. But if there is somebody who's got some of those those assets and, and those skills already there, and if they wanted to team up with somebody who, had, who does have strong wrestling knowledge, I don't know, Paul Levesque would be one of them, uh, maybe. He seemed to do, he, he, you know, we talk about wrestling booms, and, and NXT wasn't a wrestling boom, but on a certain level it was. It was... Uh, this explosion of a brand that that w- went from from nothing from this th- thing that came out of FCW to to being this thing that suddenly was able to in tandem with with the WWE main roster events sell out arenas um, and that was a, re- a remarkable phenomenon and he's somebody who who you know led that endeavor and uh, made a lot of relationships with a lot of talent and other personnel uh, so there's that I I, th- I think there's there's another opportunity for somebody if all the right pieces were together. Well, you've just mapped out the ultimate palace intrigue of uh, yeah. <laughs> where, where this could all go. I mean, yeah. God, you get that closing moment of, of Nitro where the name on the Fox renewal contract says McMahon, Shane McMahon. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, Brandon, uh, it's always great to uh, sit down and just uh, pick your brain all, over all of these very intriguing topics. And this all leads into Sunday night where WrestleNomics Radio makes its post-wrestling debut. and. Yes. Uh, you have no shortage of a discussion with yourself and Chris. I'm very much looking forward to you kind of breaking down all of this that we've been uh, talking about and who knows what'll happen in the next 48 hours. Yeah. We're going to have to get some audio clips ready, some excerpts from the, from the call. We'll have some audio to sprinkle in there. Um, we're probably going to do a little bit of Russellomics 101 as a, uh, as way is suggested. We should do a little bit of a little bit of a primer to explain to people, I think, why why WrestleNomics matters, why it's an interesting topic for a lot of people, and uh, you know, and just just sort of what we're all about. So that'll be a, a, a very interesting one that people should check out this weekend. Yeah, we, we haven't gone over the the, the re airing rights yet of uh, mm. of WrestleNomics, but uh, those yes. discussions uh, intense and fun. Yes, as, yes. as Nick Khan would put it, we'll, we'll, we'll put out another landmark announcement soon in the future. That's right. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in again. Uh, follow all of Brandon Thurston's great work uh, when it comes to all of this subject matter. And then Sunday night, it will be live at postwrestling.com, the launch of WrestleNomics Radio, the, the post-brand uh, edition of WrestleNomics mm-hmm. Radio. So that is it for us. Catch Way and Kate from Montreal tonight on Rewind to SmackDown. They will be live at 1115 Eastern for all patrons. And that is it. Goodbye.